from the background, you may think that you've just joined the Food Network or perhaps are tuning in for a cooking class with Jacques Pepin. Uh, actually, it's just in my kitchen and you're joining us for our regularly scheduled Bible 101 at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion in University City, Missouri. Welcome, and we're so glad that you are with us today. We're in that season of the year, that season of Advent, where the language of the church takes on very interesting characteristics. We often speak of it as the time awaiting for the incarnation. That is the time when God is made human in the person of Jesus Christ. We too talk about ourselves as a church of the incarnation, living with that Christ day in and day out. But seldom do we take a step back and ask ourselves what incarnation means and why it's important in the life of the Christian faithful community. And so I'd like for us today to take a bit of time and explore the incarnation as we prepare for its coming at Christmas. We begin with a prayer, the incarnation, a collect. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant us that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I mentioned just a moment ago that we're in the season of Advent, those four weeks that precede uh, the celebration of Christmas. And in some significant way, Advent is composed of three dimensions, uh, all emanating from the concept of Adventus, the Latin word uh, translated in English as coming. First, our attention is obviously focused on the coming of Jesus on his birth. We're also reminded that coming, that Adventus, says something about Jesus coming into the hearts of faithful believers. That is how we receive this Jesus. And finally, Advent reminds us that there is more than one coming. Not only the nativity, the birth of Jesus, but a second coming at the end of the age. So it's in this context of coming, of anticipation, of hope, that we begin to explore the concept of incarnation. First, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Advent has that sense of nativity, as we see clearly in the second chapter of Luke. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So scripture itself, the very beginning of this gospel, makes clear that we are preparing for something that is going to happen in the physical realm, something that's going to happen in the historical realm, something that we will remember and re-engage as we approach Christmas, the coming of Advent as nativity. 
Advent is also conscious of Christ being received by us as faithful people and held closely. From the second chapter of Luke again, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Mary understood, Mary received, Mary accepted her longing, her hope, the hope of generations before her, the people of Israel, for this long-awaited Savior, this Messiah, is now coming to fruition as she receives that good news. And third, the concept of Adventus as coming also refers to a second coming. For those of you who listened to our rector Mike Angel's sermon several weeks ago, he lamented the fact that in his previous parish, his supervisor often assigned him to preach on the end of times. And in fact, that happens each year, the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And this year from the 13th chapter of Mark, we read, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's not just in Advent that we think of the near term of Jesus coming again at Christmas or the joy of receiving that birth in our heart and pondering, as Mary did, what it means and what it will mean. But it's also the healthy sense of the broader arc of God's plan of salvation. That is, that Jesus will, in fact, come again at the end of the age. And we must, in fact, be vigilant and prepared for that. Before we delve too deeply into the weeds, I think it's probably helpful that we provide some definition and concepts uh, for the conversation. First of all, what is the incarnation? What do we mean by that? Uh, the classic definition is it's the embodiment of God becoming human in the person of Jesus. In the theological context, we understand that Jesus becomes human so that we humans may become divine. Think about that. Jesus, God, becomes human so that we might become divine. And as we talk about incarnation, this process of Jesus becoming human, there are two dimensions of it that bear note. Uh, they often intersect, but they're actually distinct concepts. The first is Christology, which will largely comprise our discussion today. Christology refers to the person of Christ. It tries to answer the question, who is Jesus? The second dimension of incarnation is soteriology, the work of the Christ. It answers the question, what does Jesus do? What is it that he accomplishes? What makes him who he is? And while much of today's conversation will focus on Christology, uh, there will be a moment or two that we talk about soteriology, what Jesus is doing. Perhaps the best way to introduce incarnation is to take that which is most familiar to us, 
the six titles that are given to Jesus in the course of the New Testament. Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, Lord, Savior, and God. Question you may have asked yourself before, what's the difference? Why so many different titles? Why so many different ways of describing Jesus? Do they mean something in and of themselves? Or is simply editorial license, uh, the familiarity of the author of one of the Gospels or the epistles that has a particular term for Jesus uh, that they're fond of? Well, in fact, as we'll see, each of these terms for Jesus, who Jesus is, his Christology, is grounded in Scripture and time that we spend a minute or two with each. As we do so, there's also a context for each of these six titles. And I encourage you as we reflect on them, that you think about what Jesus said about himself or others for that matter, what Jesus actually did, and finally, what was done by others to Jesus. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what was done to Jesus, because this context will frame our understanding of the six titles ascribed to him. The first of those titles, and perhaps the one that comes most easily to mind in this season of Advent, is Jesus as Messiah. We hear it in Matthew's first chapter. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. Concept of Messiah has a long history rooted uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. It's from the Hebrew Messiah, uh, which translates into the Greek as Christos or Christ. It means literally one who is anointed. And while in the Hebrew scriptures both prophets and kings were anointed in Israel, the focus really is on kingship, especially through the lineage of King David. In that context, David becomes especially important because as Messiah is grown conceptually in subsequent generations of Israel, it takes on a decidedly nationalistic characteristic and reaches its height, its apex, during the Roman occupation. Messiah is a king, but very much a worldly king, if not a warrior king. Ah, but dear friends, not quite so fast. We're not ready to leave Messiah yet. It's important to note that Jesus never referred to himself as Messiah. It's also important for us to acknowledge that he failed to meet the national expectations of Jews who thought he was coming to secure a military victory over Rome. And perhaps most important, his own suffering and crucifixion challenged the very popular perception of Messiah. That Jesus is the Almighty, the Messiah, the victor. How could he possibly have suffered? How could he possibly have been killed? So Messiah in and of itself brings much to the table in terms of our understanding of who Jesus is. It links us to uh, the Old Testament, 
the Hebrew scriptures and their longing for this godly king and warrior. It links us to the life of Jesus. It also places into context that he was fulfilling God's expectations, not the expectations of the people of Israel. So Messiah, while important, is not complete in its description of who this Jesus is. Paul's letter to the Romans describes Jesus as the Son of God. He who did not withhold his own Son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? concept of Jesus as God's son is an artifact principally attributed uh, to St. Paul in his writings where we see it most frequently. And scholars have concluded that Paul's rationale for its use was to foster in all of us as faithful believers and disciples the same kind of kinship, sonship, if you will, with God that Jesus enjoys. And therein, I want to make it uh, very clear, uh, in our 21st century, we understand that uh, Paul's language is not the least bit inclusive. But I think it's also fair to assert that this is an historical artifact grounded in the culture of Paul's time, and we should assume it uh, to be gender neutral and broader, to include all of us as God's children. But even as son of God, does this tell the whole story? Is Jesus more than simply a child, an important child to be sure, a faithful child, an obedient child, the perfect child? But if we understand Jesus as child, do we understand the fullness of Jesus? Do we understand his messianic kingship, for example? No. Jesus as son of God complements that, but in and of itself is insufficient to describe who Jesus is, to describe the incarnation. How about another citation from Paul in his letter to the Romans, the 10th chapter, Jesus is Lord. Because if you confess with your lips, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Probably one of the most familiar phrases that we use in our liturgy and certainly in routine conversation describing him. But it too, much like Messiah, is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. Concept is a translation of what's known as the Tetragrammaton, the four letters in the Hebrew scriptures defining the nature of God, Y-H-W-H, pronounced by us as Yahweh, but by faithful Jews never pronounced. In fact, they develop a different word, Adonai, to describe God out of respect for the holiness of that name, Yahweh. However, as the Hebrew scriptures become more widely circulated and are translated into Greek, which is known as the Septuagint, the word used to describe Yahweh is kairos, which in Greek means Lord. Hence, while our 
construct of Jesus as Lord is deeply rooted in our understanding of God from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's translated and becomes part of our vocabulary through its Greek iteration as kairos. And that becomes especially important as we look at the New Testament writings when the Jews uh, refused to honor the Roman emperor with the title of Lord. The concept of Lord is reserved solely for the divine. It is the name of God. No one can be referred to as Lord secularly. So for Jesus to be called Lord now is beginning to say something about not only human expectation as in Messiah, not only about filial relationship as in Son of God, but as God himself or herself, Jesus as Lord. We also understand in documenting who Jesus is, Jesus as Savior. Again, from the Christmas narrative, to you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. Hebrew scriptures ascribe salvation, that is the product of a Savior, only and solely through God's action. Salvation can happen in no other way other than through God. But here we have Jesus as his ministry unfolds throughout uh, the course of the New Testament. Salvation is first proclaimed by Jesus as he lifts up and announces the good news of God in a fresh voice for the people of Israel. It's also important to note that in his healing ministry, salvation is granted by Jesus in his forgiveness of sins. Now remember, in the Hebrew scriptures, salvation only occurs through God's action. Jesus is granting, with the blessing of God, forgiveness of sins. And finally, we know and confess that salvation is affected by Jesus through his death and resurrection. So here we have, to circle back to an earlier observation, the intersection of Christology and soteriology. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is Savior. And what does Jesus do? He saves. That's the soteriology. So now we're beginning to see Jesus is king and brings uh, stands against the oppression of empire. Jesus is part of God's family as son. Jesus is Lord, a title reserved only for the divine. Jesus is Savior, doing what only God can do. And finally, not surprisingly, our journey into the incarnation takes us to that point where Jesus is declared God, beginning in the very first uh, verse of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. Further in John, the famous exchange post-resurrection between doubting Thomas and Jesus. Jesus invited Thomas to put his hands into his side and into the wounds in his hands. Thomas answered him and said, my Lord, the first part of the equation, and my God. 
And Paul tells us in his letter to the Hebrews, he, Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact, not similar, but the exact imprint of God's every being. That is to say that Jesus is exactly in every way as God. So the scriptures unfold in some marvelous and fascinating ways as we get glimpses, much like a prism, different facets, different dimensions of who this Jesus is. But in the incarnation, all of these dimensions are made real, not in divinity, but in humanity, in Jesus becoming one of us. Recall, Jesus became human, that we might become divine. These are difficult concepts. And the early church fathers, and one would argue the mothers as well, struggled with them. And there were many debates, some people emerging successful and others labeled as heretics and shunned from the community. And I won't propose to take us through all of those debates, subtle and monumental uh, across the spectrum, but rather the confrontation between two schools of thought, which I think perhaps best helps us come to grips with incarnation. An early church father named Arius constructed his understanding of God as follows. First, no creature, that is something other than God, no creature can redeem another creature. Only God can redeem a creature. Okay. For Arius, Jesus is a creature. Not of God, but made by God, appearing at God's will. Therefore, if Jesus is a creature, Jesus cannot redeem humanity. And consequently, if he can't redeem humanity, Jesus cannot be God. So while Arius recognizes the importance of Jesus, he subrogates Jesus and subordinates his role to that of God, making him a creature of God, not in the fullness of God. On the other hand was the early church father, Athanasius. Athanasius had a very different view, uh, and one might argue more biblically sound given what we've just talked about already today. Athanasius argues the following, only God can save, and we saw that uh, reflected just a moment ago. We also know that Jesus Christ saves through his death and resurrection. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. Only God can save. Jesus Christ saves. And therefore, Jesus Christ is God. And we see that finally framed in uh, the Nicene Creed, uh, first adopted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 of the Christian era and later revised in 381 at Constantinople. And just to reiterate uh, a portion of the creed that we recite uh, in the Eucharist every Sunday and every time we make Eucharist together. 
we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Of one being with the Father, there is no separation between Jesus and God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, with God from the beginning, fully God. And now, as we look forward to Christmas in this Advent season, to be made fully human. Complex issues, to be sure, and this is only a brief overview of the concept of incarnation, of Jesus coming into the world. But perhaps four questions that you might consider. The first, what Christological title or titles, you know, Son of God, Savior, Messiah, most resonate with your personal experience of Jesus? And why? The second question, what are the implications of the various titles ascribed to Jesus? So when we say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Messiah, in the context of our world today, what are the implications of that? For the implications are more than just uh, its historical context for Israel, but also for us. The third, can Jesus really be Jesus, absent any of these titles? Or does it take all of these titles in consort to reflect who Jesus is? And finally, what is the practical implication of God becoming human in the person of Jesus? What does it mean in your life, in your family's life, in my life, for God becoming human in the person of Jesus. Thank you much for joining uh, in this reflection today. And I hope you'll join us uh, on Sunday morning at 1130 uh, for our coffee hour and a Zoom-based discussion of the concept of incarnation. Who is this Jesus anyway? Thank you.